2 Kings 18, kind of a long chapter, but hard to separate it out. We have this new king coming to the throne in Judah, and his name is Hezekiah. Hezekiah is a great king. And it's not too often while going through the books of Kings and Chronicles that we can say somebody was a great king. But Hezekiah was a great king. And yet, most of this chapter is taken up by the suffering that the people of Judah and Jerusalem in particular are facing while Hezekiah is king. But first we get, not suffering, but success. First we get the success of Hezekiah. So in verses 1 through 8, we read about how Hezekiah is a great king. And it's a surprise because of how great he is. We've seen good kings before, but Hezekiah we can truly say is a great king. And that's a bit of a surprise because of the trajectory that the kings have been on. The immediately preceding king, who also happens to have been his father. So you don't expect a man to be uh, fantastic when he's brought up by a wicked man, right? And yet, in God's providence, this happens not just in this chapter, but all over the place. So many men who are followers of Christ Jesus, who are good and holy men, have wicked, wicked fathers. And so isn't God merciful? Just giving us this little picture. Here's this great man. And what was his father like? Ahaz was bad. Ahaz was bad. Remember, he changed the worship of the Lord, changed the design of the temple, moved things around that God had put in place, established the worship according to the practices of the kingdom that he and Assyria defeated together. He looked to Assyria. He's the reason that Assyria is on the doorstep of Hezekiah. In a lot of ways, Hezekiah learned from the mistakes that his father had made. Ahaz also lost land to Aram and uh, Hezekiah is the opposite of all of this. Hezekiah isn't just a good king. Several other good kings have been compared to King David, that quintessential standard by which all other kings are judged, right? This is why Jesus is king in the line of David. Of course, Jesus is the greater king. He is the truly quintessential, perfect, holy king, right? 
But David is the test by which all other kings are judged. And Hezekiah is compared to David. He says, he did right in verse 3, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. That's it. There's no uh, caveats given in the praise of Hezekiah. Now that doesn't mean Hezekiah isn't a sinner. That doesn't mean Hezekiah doesn't make mistakes. We know Hezekiah is a sinner and will make mistakes. The same as David did, right? And yet where were their hearts? What were they committed to? What were they devoted to? And how committed, how devoted were they to the Lord and to his commands? Hezekiah actually gets rid of the male and female worship symbols that were on the high places. Hezekiah gets rid of the high places. Of all the kings that we've read about, they did good, but the high places remained, right? It doesn't say it right here at the beginning, but you, what you understand by the time you've read the whole chapter is that he has gotten rid of the high places because Rabshakeh actually points out to the people that Hezekiah has done this as he's attempting to turn the people against Hezekiah. And of course, this is where the Asherah and the sacred pillars would have been placed on the high places. Hezekiah gets rid of them. Hezekiah, I think probably the, the best test for uh, showing Hezekiah's goodness, and not just his goodness, but his greatness as a king, is actually his destruction of the bronze serpent. Because the bronze serpent is clearly good. We all know the bronze serpent was good, right? You kids remember where the bronze serpent came from? Where did it come from? Who's going to tell me? zeal. Moses made it. So, there you go. Moses made it. <laughs> we're, not talking about, we're not talking about the calf that Aaron made. We're talking about the snake, the serpent, the bronze serpent that Moses made. And what did God use it for? Yeah. Exactly. God told Moses to make the snake. So it's not just Moses made the snake. God told Moses to make the serpent. And it was while the people were being bitten by snakes. And if they would look to this bronze serpent, their lives were spared. They would be healed. So the bronze serpent is good. Right? Bronze serpent is good. What in the world is Hezekiah doing destroying the bronze serpent? Any of you kids want to answer? Yeah, Judah. 
they were they were sacrificing to it. Yes, but what is so so? What does that mean? He's doing by destroying it. He's taking away what? He's taking away their idol. You get it? They've taken something good, the bronze serpent that Moses made, that God used for good. They have begun to burn incense to it. I don't think it says sacrifice, does it? Did I miss that? My study. Burn incense, okay. And I got one up on Judah, so just everybody mark that down. I get a point. Okay. (laughs) So, they're burning incense to the bronze serpent, which means they're worshiping this as an idol instead of as a good thing that God has done. They've turned it into an object of worship, right? And so he destroys the bronze serpent because, not because it's bad in and of itself, but because the people need it taken away from them because the people are bad. You see the difference? It, and therefore, it has become a stumbling block. Therefore, it has become bad. Because the people are using it wrong. This is what needs to happen to the images of the saints that the Roman Catholics burn candles to and pray to. The images need to be destroyed because the people are worshiping. They are a stumbling block to the people. They've become idols, right? And in fact, we've done that to the saints themselves. What are saints? Faithful men and women who have gone before us, who we are to look to as models, right? As role models and as people who we should look up to, yes, as people who we are to imitate, who are to strengthen our faith, we're to read them, we're to study what they've done. All of these things are true, and yet is it possible for us to make Saint Augustine into an idol? It is, isn't it? And the moment that we begin to pray to St. Augustine instead of to God, St. Augustine needs to go bye-bye. The same as the bronze serpent did. But that's really the, the sort of the pinnacle of Hezekiah's reform in my mind. Because that's really, really hard to see the good things that the people are misusing and to see the good things that the people are beginning to make idols of, to see that those things need to be taken away, that that is a tall order. Can we see the good things in our own lives and the temptations that we have to make idols out of them? Can we see And get rid of, out of our hearts, worship of good things which makes them bad? Hezekiah sees it. And so he begins, doesn't just begin the work of reform, but he carries it to its utmost. 
He gets rid of the high places. He gets rid of even the bronze serpent. And what else does it say about him? He trusted in the Lord, it says, and clung, clung to the Lord. Now, this morning, um, I got to hold Eden. And uh, it was really sweet because she's a cute little baby. And, um, but, you know, Eden did not cling to me. She put up with me for about five minutes, and then she was like, I, I want to get down, you know. When you see a baby with his or her mother, right, you see this clinging, this holding on tight, right? Hezekiah clung to the Lord. Do we cling to the Lord like Hezekiah? Isn't that what you want to do now that I've, just, now that I've put that picture in your mind of a baby clinging to their mother, right? Don't you want to be clinging to the Lord? Who, where else do you want to cling? There's, there's no one, there's nothing, right? Hezekiah clung to the Lord. It also says he obeyed the Lord. Is it any surprise that a man who clings to the Lord obeys the Lord? No, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? When we cling to the Lord, we, we love him. We want to do what he says. And of course, I started with trusted in the Lord, right? Trusting and clinging go together. I think maybe if I hold her long enough, she might begin to trust me. Maybe there will be a little bit more trust. Right? Hezekiah knew he could trust the Lord. And it even says, oh wait, I, I wanted to say about clinging. There, there, one of the, I, I don't, I don't generally read Hebrew. In fact, I don't. I can't. I used to be able to, but I just can't anymore. So, so I don't bother typically looking at the Hebrew. But one of the commentators pointed out that this word clung is used elsewhere in the Bible. Not surprisingly, right? It's actually where, uh, right at the beginning... When it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, it's that same word, that coming together, cleaving to, clinging to. So again, another picture of what we're talking about with Hezekiah clinging to the Lord. And so, it says, there was no other king like him before or after. Hezekiah was a pretty amazing dude. Pretty wonderful king to have. 
especially given the context. The falling apart that we're seeing in the nation, right? The slowly but surely slouching toward Gomorrah, right? And God blessed him. That's not a surprise. He clings to the Lord, the Lord blesses him. He trusts the Lord, the Lord blesses him. He obeys the Lord, the Lord blesses him. And that blessing is described in our passage with earthly success as a king, right? The same as David. David was given victory over the Philistines. He defeated them. So did Hezekiah. He refused to serve Assyria. And instead he served the Lord. He took back the land that the Arameans had taken. This is a truly victorious time in the land of Judah. It's glorious. One of the things that gives you a feel for that is that he has put gold on the doors and the doorposts of the temple again. Now, it doesn't say that until later when he's taking it off again. But remember, we're trying to get a picture of what success looks like, what the kingdom looks like, while Hezekiah is king, right? And it's, it's amazing. It's glorious. He's got expanded borders. He's got wealth. God blesses him. Meanwhile, again, to, to even bring even more context, verses 9 through 12, we get a reminder of what's going on in Israel during this time. And what's going on in Israel during this time is that Assyria is defeating and taking captive the Israelites. And that's the context in which Hezekiah, while Israel is being defeated, and they're his last barrier to Assyria, right? The Assyrians taken Aram, then they take Israel, and what's left? Assyria comes all the way to Judah's border at this time, right? Once Israel's gone. And that's when he is refusing to serve Assyria. That's gutsy, right? It's really sweet to see what it was like under Hezekiah compared to what was going on in Israel. So we get that short little recap. It shows us how awesome it is that Hezekiah was refusing to serve Assyria. <clears throat> but then we get to verse 13. And in verse 13, this is not what we were expecting. With the buildup, of how grand and glorious Hezekiah was, to suddenly read in verse 13 that it says, now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. So, 14 years. How, is anybody in here 14 right now? 
Okay, we got a 14. He was 14. All right. So 14 years. So, so Hezekiah has reigned Hugh's whole life. And things are going great. You can do a lot in 14 years. You can change an entire nation, an entire country in 14 years, right? Think about what one president can accomplish in four. Lots can happen in four years, right? Lots can happen in 14 years. And Hezekiah has this glorious rule going on. And then in the 14th year, verse 13, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. That's not what we wanted to hear, right? I mean, now, what did you want to hear? On my, in my Bible, this says page 588. Okay. So, like, it'd be kind of cool if 595 was the end. If 595 was the end and starting it, because 5, 588 is the, uh, is the page where it starts, that's where I would change it. I'm just going to replace page 588 with new stuff and replace the next few pages to bring the story to an end and it'll be a happy story. Hezekiah could be like, you know... The grand, glorious, pinnacle, the ending, the return of favor. and But you know, that's of course not what we want, right? We want to get to Jesus. Hezekiah is not Jesus. Hezekiah, as great as he is, is not the son of David. He's one of the sons of David, but he's not the Son of David. I think what we all want, if you think about the, the glories of Hezekiah's reign, and you think what you want to have happen, right? What you want to have happen is just this permanent successful reign. You want what God has promised. Don't you? Don't you want a kingdom that will last? Don't you want a king that is perfect? Isn't that what we want? And so Hezekiah is not that guy. And that kingdom, that earthly kingdom, that's not the kingdom. We are about to see a sad rest of the chapter after this build-up of Hezekiah. Build him up, tear him down. But actually, Hezekiah isn't torn down. We begin to see his... Mistakes, yes. 
his fears, where, he, where his faith wanes. Yes. But ultimately, isn't it a glorious thing that the, that the most glorious king since David, there's been no king like him before or since in Judah. Isn't it remarkable how he doesn't even begin to compare to Jesus? I mean, he's not even close. He can't, he can't give us the, the end of the story we want. We have the king that Hezekiah is just this itty-bitty tiny picture of. We have King Jesus. Could you ask for anything better? And so we've got the end of the story we want. We've got the king that reigns eternally. We've got the kingdom that has no end. We've got victory over all enemies forever. We've even got no more tears and no more sadness. No more sickness, no more death. That's what God has given to us, his people. So don't, don't worry about Hezekiah. I know it's disappointing, but isn't it supposed to be disappointing? Aren't all men disappointing compared to Jesus Christ? Okay, so let's look at the disappointment by faith. Let's look at the disappointment with understanding. What happens? Verse 13 Assyria starts winning. The enemies of the Lord begin to have victory over God's people. What happens? They take the cities, <clears throat> the fortified cities that should have been strong, that are going to protect the nation, right? To protect the rest of the kingdom, they're all taken. And how does Hezekiah respond? Hezekiah's heart of faith gives out. He has a faith heart attack. You guys ever felt like your heart was not beating quite right? Some of you literally have hearts that are not beating quite right at times. I I have at times wondered, like, is my heart okay? I don't know. What's going on in there? feels funky. Scary thought, right? If your heart's not working right, uh-oh. It's got to keep going, or I don't keep going. Hezekiah has a a faith heart attack. Have you ever had a, a faith heart attack before? Something that causes you to begin to doubt, causes you to fear and to stop clinging and trusting in the Lord and instead 
begin to cast around and look for something else to hold on to. Hezekiah tries to buy off King Sennacherib of Assyria. King of Assyria comes, that's the trial. The trial is no more victory. Suddenly, the enemies are at the gate. What are you going to do? Hezekiah decides he's going to try to buy off King Sennacherib, doing precisely what other kings are shamed for. There's not a time in the Bible where going into the temple and taking the treasures of the temple is viewed positively. Right? And this is clearly a problem. Even if you just want to say, well, it was necessary. You know, it was, it was wise. And it was worth it. It was worth a try. Nevertheless, you're still left with the fact that Hezekiah, who had put gold back on the doors of the temple, restocked its treasuries with silver, right, is left going, yeah, I'm going to have to take all that back. Because I'm going to give it to the king of Assyria. I'm going to give it to the enemy king. You're going to what? Yeah, you know, on second thought, I think it's better to serve the king of Assyria than to serve God. It's just going to be a lot easier for us to serve king of Assyria. He trusts ultimately in the money that he's been able to stockpile than in the Lord who has blessed him with that money in the first place. He trusts ultimately in the money that's in the temple than in the God who is in the temple. And of course, the money doesn't save him, does it? The money does not save him. The wicked king of Assyria turns out he's wicked. And even though he gave them all the money and the king said, yeah, yeah, that'll do. Next thing you hear in the story, he's at the gates again. Come on. I already gave you all the money. Yeah. And thanks for that, by the way. But now I'm going to destroy your city. Because you deserve it. You rebelled. You thought that I was going to let you off with just paying money, but that was just because I needed some cash to pay my soldiers so I could come and destroy your city. Sennacherib. Evil dude. Wicked enemy. Not who you want to be trusting, right? Not who you want to try to ally yourself with. So, is this the end of Hezekiah's wonderful record? Started out great, started out trusting in the Lord, nobody else like him. 
has a faith heart attack and that's the end of him? No. Now, we're not going to be able to get to the end of that story today because we get this intervening story, this whole big picture of what happens with the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and his various other high officials, the Rab Shakah and others, who come and begin to speak to the people of Jerusalem. And what they say in verses 19 through 25 is a mix of wrong and right, lies and truth. And it's all coming from God's enemies. So, not everything that God's enemies say is wrong, right? Not everything they say is wrong. But their purpose, their goal is. Goal is wrong. And uh, this is also what we hear about Satan. He can disguise himself as an angel of light precisely because he'll tell you true things, right? But what is his goal? Death, destruction, darkness. What does this speech from Rob Shakah communicate that is true? Well, one of the things is that trusting in Egypt is indeed foolish. You tried money, now you're going to try Egypt. And this is one of my favorite uh, word pictures in the Bible. What does it say that trusting in the king of Egypt is like trusting in Pharaoh? <clears throat> in verse 21, it says, Now behold, you rely on the staff. What do you use a staff for? You walk with it, right? You hold on to it while you're walking. It's a nice, solid stick that you can use for putting some weight on. You rely on that. And what does it say? You rely on the staff of this crushed reed. Now, a crushed reed is not something that sounds strong, reliable, right? You think you can rely on a crushed reed? No. But here's where, this is why, this is my favorite word picture. You rely on this crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. It's just impossible for me not to think about what it's like to have a splinter in my hand. Have you guys ever had a splinter in your hand? When I read that, I think, ow. It's one thing to have a little splinter. I've gotten little splinters in my palm, you know. Or, but like, you're leaning on the staff, and it breaks, and it goes through your hand. Oh, you don't want a staff like that. You don't want to rely on Egypt. 
And that's what Egypt is. Egypt, if you rely, if you lean on Egypt, it's just going to hurt you. There's a lot of things that we're tempted to rely on that are just going to hurt us. What a great truth. Spoken to God's people by God's enemy. Rob Shakah. So true. Rabshakeh is not a fool. The people who are on your side politically are not necessarily on your side religiously. Um, Rabshakeh speaks some truth, but he has a goal. And the goal is to separate the people from Hezekiah. The goal is to destroy the peace and unity of the people of the city of Jerusalem because if you can divide them, you can conquer them. And he knows how to divide people from those they trust. He knows how to sow doubt and division and discord. Because he knows that just because people are in agreement about some political issue doesn't mean that they're truly, fully in agreement. And you can make use of those to wedge them apart. He doesn't care about their religion. He doesn't care about religion at all. What he cares about is politics. He's got a political goal of dividing them so that they will rebel against Hezekiah. They'll give him the city. They don't have to have a big military fight. They can just have a coup and it's over. He wants to go home. He's a powerful, influential, wealthy man. It'd be nicer just to expand the kingdom from home, right? If he can cause division within the city, he will win. And he knows the reforms of Hezekiah. Remember, we built up Hezekiah. The reforms of Hezekiah, where he did away with false worship, he got rid of the bronze serpent, he got rid of the high places, he wiped out the Asherah and the, and the pillars, right? All the things that we were saying were good, everybody was in agreement. Oh yeah, they're good, as long as he was winning. as long as it led to prosperity. But now we're not leading to prosperity anymore. And remember, the people were doing those things because the people liked doing those things. Are you tracking? So it's not like everybody just assumed that Hezekiah was the greatest king ever because he got rid of the bronze serpent. No, they kind of put up with him getting rid of the bronze serpent. They liked burning incense to the bronze serpent. But they put up with it because he was military, political success. So what do we do with a people that seem united but we know there's a sneaky place where we can get in and cause division. Rob Shakah does it. 
He knows that these reforms are likely resented by many, many people. Hezekiah was undoubtedly popular because of his victories, making the land prosperous, but now they're facing lack of prosperity and possibly starvation and death. And that's what Rab Shakah tells the people in their own tongue so that everybody can understand. He wants everybody to hear because his goal is to cause division. Hezekiah's response at this time is partly he's trusted in Egypt, yes. But ultimately, Rabshakeh knows what Hezekiah is going to say to the people is trust in the Lord. He's going to appeal to God, right? And so Rabshakeh begins to paint these seeds or plant these seeds of doubt. The Lord is either letting them go through this or he's unable to stop Assyria. Either way, that's a temptation to the people to stop worshiping the Lord, to stop putting their trust in him. Why trust in the Lord if he's letting you go through this? Why trust in the Lord if he's unable to stop you from going through this? If safety and prosperity are the reasons you were willing to follow along with Hezekiah's reforms, you can immediately blame his reforms when those things are gone. Plus, the Asherah were kind of nice. Plus, God told Moses to make the bronze serpent. What right do you have to destroy it? You see, it's very, very sneaky. And this man's offering prosperity and safety. Granted, not in the Lord's land. All you got to do is give up the land that God has promised. All you got to do is give up the Lord. And you can have it. I want to end by pointing out how much Rabshakeh is like Satan. He's just a little picture. Same way that Hezekiah is a little picture of Christ. Rabshakeh is a little picture of Satan. He makes these promises like, like he's God. I can deliver prosperity to you. I can give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Right? Sounds great. And he makes accusations like Satan. Now, have you actually been serving the Lord? Isn't, isn't God a God of love? Aren't you supposed to be loving? It seems to me like you're awfully judgmental and hate-filled. How could you expect God to be on your side when you've been hate-filled? God is love. 
Does this sound familiar to you guys? That's not what Rob Chikai was saying. That's what the enemies of God are saying to us today. This is what Satan is saying to the people of the Lord today. And I think that part of what's going on today is that Christians are equally confused about having political allies and having religious allies. Politics and religion are so easily intertwined and interwoven because one affects the other, right? And so if people are on your side in politics, then clearly they're on your side in religion, right? But it's not true. And in fact, it could be a a very nice alliance of convenience. But are they going to be able to be divided away from you at the drop of a hat? Hezekiah has to know whether the people are going to follow him in trusting the Lord. And Rabshakeh's goal is to divide them off. No, don't trust in the Lord. I can give you what you actually wanted this whole time. What is your trust in? God is showing in this picture of Hezekiah and Rabshakeh and the people. He's showing us our faithless solutions in contrast to his own perfect provisions. Which one are you going to trust in? That's really the question. Are you going to have a heart attack of faith? Or are you just going to cling to God? You've got Satan accusing. You've got promises of prosperity. You've got Rob Shakah at the gates. You've got the army surrounding. Cling to